Jeremiah 23. Basically, it is a uh, an admonition to a wayward ministry. It is for the end time, verse 20, in the latter days, you shall consider it or understand it perfectly. And I think that we are beginning to understand that, that the ministry is not what it ought to be today. That's God's general overall comment about the ministry in the church. <clears throat> of course, all who read this accept themselves. Uh, it's always someone else. But we all need to realize that we had a wrong approach, a wrong desire, a wrong way of doing things, and that that needs to be changed. <clears throat> the ministry needs to repent just as much as anyone does, perhaps more in that sense. We talked about dreams a bit. Uh, one further comment, I think I mentioned perhaps Joel 2 and Acts 2, there will be dreams at the end time, the young men and maidens, old men and children and so on, visions and dreams that God will give. <clears throat> now, some of you have had dreams over the last few years that seemed to you to be significant, and who knows, perhaps they are. But dreams are not what we go by or teach by or preach by. Dreams may come, and God will certainly give dreams at some time. It's difficult to know sometimes whether a dream came from God or some other source. That's why it is not practical to preach from dreams. Uh, the ministry sometimes does that. Uh, Martin Luther King said he had a dream. I don't know that it came as a dream in the night, but he had certainly had a vision or a dream of what he wished to do, and certainly some of the goals that he had were valid. There were many, many wrongs in our country, and racial wrongs. Hopefully some of those have been corrected, but there's still a long, long way to go before all racial prejudice is put aside. That was one man's dream. Uh... The ministry often has their own vision or their own dream of the way things are or the way they ought to be, and we've discussed that considerably over the last few years about what the direction of the Bible is right now as opposed to the direction most of the ministry is trying to go. <clears throat> so, God says be sure and use His words, uh, not our own idea, our own dream, or even from a dream in the night. Those may or may not come from God, but we know that this word here is inviolable. You don't hear me preaching from dreams or recounting necessarily your dreams. Once in a while, I think I did mention one of the beasts, maybe about a lady that had had a, a dream about the hall there and a flood and so on, and we were in the midst of a flood. Uh, so, you know, there may be some validity, and that may have come from God as comfort, uh, as encouragement, and sometimes I think God may give those things to us. But when it comes to saying what really is, this word cannot be denied. This is what we need to be preaching from and about. Because people can have false focuses, false dreams, false ideas, that really do not come from the Bible at all. Then he tells us 
But the burden that is on us, on us does not come, or its cause was not from him. Now, he said he is splitting the church apart and sending into the spiritual captivity in many, many, many places. I don't think that this is a contradiction by any means of that. But he's saying if you're blaming me for your problems, you're barking up the wrong tree. I am causing this to come upon you because what you have done, because of what you have done. So the burden really is a burden that is self-inflicted. You know, you don't cause a child to do what you tell him not to do. You inflict the punishment for it. But you didn't bring that punishment on him. He brought it on himself by what he did. And we as children of God are on the same level. <clears throat> so he said, don't say, God is persecuting me unfairly, or God is bringing this on me. No, we brought it upon ourselves by the way we have lived and acted. The ministry and the people as well. He includes all in verse 33, where he says, And when this people, or the prophet, or a priest, shall ask you, saying, What is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, What burden? And then he goes on to explain, It is our burden, because we have perverted the words of the living God. That's where the burden comes from, the heavy load that we are carrying today. <clears throat> so, here we have a diatribe basically against the ministry, and then in chapter 24, in connection with that, it might seem isolated, but I think the context ties these, ties these two together. We have the story about the two baskets of figs. So when God comes down on the ministry in chapter 23, and all of us, if we think this just came from God without cause, then he does, I believe here, a separation process. Let's get into it. Chapter 24 of Jeremiah. The Eternal showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord. Two baskets in front of where? The temple. Because we will see that these two baskets of figs represent people. And they represent the temple. The people who go to the temple. So, right off the bat, I think it's clear that this is not talking just about physical people in the nation who are good or bad. That this basket was set before the temple, not before, uh, let's say, the Supreme Court or uh, the White House or Congress. It's set before the temple. So, it has to do with the church. So these two baskets of figs were set before the temple after the Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captives, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and brought them to Babylon. So, <clears throat> this was set before the people of God, and it was at a time of captivity. Now, we're going to tie this together if we get into chapter 25 today, with what is going on in the church today in terms of the time that we are in and the time that we have been through. But let's not get ahead of the story there. So, let's read about the baskets. Verse 2, One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe. 
first fruits, if you will, things that are first right. And the other basket had very, my King James says, naughty figs, could be rotten figs or unpalatable, tasteless figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. You put rotten fruit in your mouth, I'm sure, at some point, and quickly gotten rid of it because it was not fit to eat. So God is comparing what is in the temple or at the temple of God with figs. Some that are succulent and taste really good, first ripe, coming off the tree, and others that are rotten. <clears throat> then said the Eternal to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? Should have been obvious, I guess, but God wanted to make a very poignant point here. And I said, Figs. The good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil. They cannot be eaten. They are so evil. Probably had a smell wafting up from them and fruit flies on them. Again, the word of the Eternal came to me say, Thus says the Eternal, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. God was sending some into captivity. Why? That they might repent, that they might learn to obey and fear God. You see, they had been in the mental approach and attitude up to that point of disobeying God, putting false gods ahead of God, doing anything but worship God. So the captivity had a purpose, and that was for their good, that they might learn to fear God and obey Him and serve Him with their whole heart. If they would do that, then blessing would return. He goes on to explain, For I will set my eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Uh, I'll refer you back to chapter 23, verse 3. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them, and will bring them again to their foals, and they shall be fruitful and increase. So, in spite of the destruction that is coming against the ministry and against the organizations, God is going to save out a remnant who will be faithful, and he will take care of them, and plant them again in a place that they can grow. Now, that story fits with Haggai, Zechariah, and many, many other places in Isaiah and through the prophets and the Bible, New Testament teaching included, where Christ will sort out the wheat from the tares and so on. He will have a faithful remnant. So, Jeremiah 24 is in that same spirit and approach. Verse 7, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. So, going into captivity is a good thing from God's perspective because it leads to repentance. That's why we have trials, troubles, and difficulties as Christians. Through much tribulation enter the kingdom, and many are the afflictions of the righteous, for a purpose, and that is to bring about conversion and turning our hearts to our God in heaven. That is the purpose. That's why God says rejoice in your trials, troubles, and tribulations. Hard to do sometimes, 
But God says rejoice in them. Don't be burdened by them because they're put on you for a direct purpose. And don't we have a lot of them in today's church? Whether it be mental health, physical health, uh, finances, uh, family troubles, you name it. The church is riddled with problems today. Part of a punishment, part of a trial and affliction sent by God for the purpose of turning us to God. The modern philosophy of child rearing is, don't hurt the little darlings because they will hate you. Now, does God buy into that? No. God punishes us so that we will love him. That's what punishment is for. The world has it backward. So God's purpose here is to sort out the pigs. Sort the good from the bad. And he will take care of the good and plant them in a good place. Verse 8. And as the evil pigs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, they're just unpalatable to God. Uh, I'm sure his sense of taste is very refined. Ours may be perverted by some of the foods of Babylon that we've imbibed of for so many years. But God has a very strong sense of taste of what is good and what is not good. And if he sticks an evil pig in his mouth, he will know the difference immediately. Rotten fruit is pretty easy to tell. He will have no trouble discerning who will follow him and who will not. Who has a wrong attitude and who has a right attitude. But about them, surely thus says the Eternal, so will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land and then that dwell in the land of Egypt. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt to be a reproach and a proverb a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. Now notice he puts trials and troubles and difficulties on the good pigs to turn their hearts to him. But of the bad pigs, those with long rebellious attitudes of idolatry against God, it will be for their hurt, not for their good. I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave to them and to their fathers. I think it is true and confirmed here that most of those in the church, in the temple, which is depicted by good and bad pigs, will go into the tribulation, 90%, and essentially all will die in tribulation. I read an article sent to me just the other day on the internet. I'm not sure this is talking about Church of God people, but in Eritrea, uh, they invaded the congregations of the Church of the Living God and Philadelphia, among others, and put their people in jail and sought out their elders and put them in jail. One elder escaped, apparently. Now, I don't know of other Protestant or of Protestant denominations known as Living God or Philadelphia. I would assume that those are people 
of the ones we are aware of as splinters of the church. But that is, if it is true, only a very small beginning of the sword, the famine, and the pestilence that will come. So God here is sorting out the remnant from those who will go into tribulation, or good pigs from bad pigs, if you will. Says the same thing about them that he does in Deuteronomy 28, if we disobey, and in Ezekiel 5, about the nation and the church. So, at the time that he begins to purge the ministry and punish it for what it has done, he will also begin sorting the people. Now, let's go to chapter 25. <clears throat> the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So this message is for all of Israel and it is for all the church. All the church first, really. He's been talking about the ministry in the temple here. Verse 3, From the thirteenth year of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, that is, the three and twentieth year, been preaching a long time, the word of the Eternal has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not hearkened. That's a long time to preach over and over and over again, and people won't listen. You know, it is a good feeling, any of you who were in Spokesman's Club or given sermonettes or whatever, it is truly a good feeling to feel like you might be doing well and receive the most effective speaker's award or the most improved speaker's award or something to show that someone appreciated what you had to say. Remember those days? You go to club and you'd hope you did well and you would hope the evaluator assigned to you didn't just draw and corner you in front of everyone, everyone and that the overall evaluator didn't also stomp you in the mud. Now, too often those things happened, but you didn't desire it or want it. And if you think Spokesman's Club was bad, you should have been to Ambassador Club, where they were trying to make ministers out of those students and really wronged and handed them their heads. Now, maybe in some cases it was worse out in the field because those young fellows went out for an ambassador having been stomped in the mud there, decided that they should in turn stomp everyone in the mud. So, maybe it was worse in some areas, I don't know. But can you imagine giving speeches rising early every day for 23 years and at the end of that time, being given the least effective speaker's trophy. Because nobody wanted to hear what you had to say. Those must have been Jeremiah's emotions. You have not hearkened. And the Eternal has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. But you have not hearkened nor inclined your ear to hear. Didn't Paul make comments? about lazy, slow-bellied people 
who could not consider spiritual things and say at times, you are yet carnal. You are not listening. So in every age it has been the same. God has always sent people to tell people, but they don't want to listen. And nothing has changed. For the most part, people do not want to hear what God has to say today. They want to hear smooth and easy things, as other scriptures say. Verse 5. They said, turn you again, now everyone, from his evil way. The message is always the same from God's true ministry or prophets. It's always the same. Never changes. Turn again, everyone, from his evil way. And from the evil of your doings. And dwell in the land that the eternal has given to you and to your fathers forever and ever. That was the message in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, blessings and cursings chapter. Obey God and live in the land forever. Disobey God and be taken into captivity, which happened to them. And it occurred in the, again in the days of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the others. And they went into captivity again. Those words have been written down by God to be repeated. Because he knew at the end time we would need to hear those same words all over again. But nothing would have changed even until the very end. We had a totally wrong focus on prophecy years ago in the church. We were so busy trying to determine whether it was all going to end in 72 or 75 or 82 or whatever year we might have picked out and exactly how it would happen, and exactly who would be involved, but we didn't have time to listen to the real message of the prophets, and that is that we needed to turn to God with our whole heart and obey Him. That message in the prophecies we missed. Because we thought we were so good and so spiritual, but that must have been meant for someone else, not us. Now, this has come down upon us. He is about to tell us at the end of this chapter that a great captivity is going to occur as a result. A few will listen. A faithful remnant will hear. Sometimes I think I feel like a broken record, but how must have Jeremiah felt? I haven't preached this anywhere near 23 years yet. So, picking up again in verse 6. And go not after other gods to serve them and to worship them, and provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands, and I will do you no hurt. God promises that. We'll put him there and pay attention to him. Think of him. Pray to him. Study about him. Study his word. Be involved with God, in other words, instead of involved with other things. As I've said before, there may be certain things that are not sin per se. They become sin and become an idol when they burn the time that we need to be using to seek God. So anything can be an idol. Anything there is can be wrong if it takes 
the time we need to be devoting to God. Employment can be a sin. Now, we're all to work, because if you don't work, you shouldn't eat, God says. And there are many scriptures that indicate that we should work, and that we should not be lazy. On the other hand, some people want to do nothing but work, see? And if you work 16, 17, 18 hours a day, you don't have time to devote to God. So then work can become an idol, even though work is something that is good. Food can become an idol if it begins to consume our time and our energy and our thoughts. Nothing wrong with eating food, unless and until it becomes an out-of-balance thing, and that is our focus. So whatever it is, even though it might be good to begin with, can be misused, abused, and become idolatrous. Verse 7, Yet you have not hearkened to me, says the Eternal, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. We're cutting off our nose to smite our face, or spite our face, excuse me. When we don't devote the time to God, that he needs, requires, wants, and is jealous of. You don't become jealous of someone unless you have some concern for them in some way. Right? Are you jealous of the premier of North Korea? I doubt it. You don't have any particular regard personally for him. And in fact, the reports you hear on North Korea, you probably have a very dim view of it. And it's probably well deserved. But you're not jealous of what he has. I mean, I just picked the person that came to mind. Jealousy arises when you care. And you want attention. Or you want what they have, or whatever. Well, God wants our attention. And he is a jealous God. If we give our attention to others, he becomes upset. Bottom line. And you don't want to mess with God. You don't want him upset. He has the power of life and death, blessing and cursing, good and evil. And he will use it. And he is. So you've done this to your own hurt, confirming what he said about, don't say the burden comes from God. We've done it to ourselves. He's just providing the same for the evil that we have done. Verse 7, Yet you have not hearkened to me, says the Eternal, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, or as a result of, or here we have cause and effect again. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, because you have not heard my words. The end-time church, for the most part, will not hear his words nor will physical Israel hear his words. And as a result, upon both, he pronounces evil. Verse 9. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the Lord, says the Eternal, and Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, and against the inhabitants thereof, and against all these nations round about, and will utterly destroy them, and make them an astonishment, and a cursing and perpetual desolations. Now, 
He's going to send the tribes of the north. All of them. Now, traditionally, uh, and we've talked about this before, the enemies of Israel were to the south from Egypt, but primarily from the north, from the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. All those peoples to the north and essentially to the west, some to the east and some to the west, but basically from north of the Holy Land. Now, over the millennium, millenniums, those encompassed a lot of different enemies. So when God refers to all those peoples of the north, he's talking about all the traditional enemies of Israel. Wherever they may have wound up in this modern era, they are a type of the enemies that will come against Israel today. Israel is no longer right there in that little section of the Middle East. Israel has now spread around the world. So we have to have a wider view of this prophecy than just the Middle East. <clears throat> so all the enemies that Israel has ever had, all the families of the north, will be involved. Go to Psalm 83, and it mentions a lot of different people who will be involved. Isaiah 8. We've been there before. I'm not going there today, but I will pass on reference to it. And you can go read it yourself. It mentions many, many different types of peoples. Now, the families of the north, and even the king of Babylon. Now, I think it is interesting, referring back to the series we had on Babylon, that America is basically the leader of Babylon today, and I think represents Babylon. We are the great whore of Ezekiel 16, and the great whore of Revelation, which the beast and the false prophet will chow down upon. Uh, I won't go into reproving all of that. Listen to the series on Babylon uh, over again if you did not get that. I think there's enough proof there to show that this is indeed the case and that Babylon will fall twice. America will fall as the leader of Babylon. We export more paganism than anyone. And then a new Babylon, a beast, will take over. And Christ will in turn destroy that beast. So the Babylonian Empire will fall twice in the end time. I think it is interesting here that he mentions Babylon as well as the other families of the north in this context. Because I do believe that even though we represent Babylon in the world, our own government is in on this. They are betraying us to the new world order to the new global system, to the UN and its uh, rulership, or whoever finally makes up the ten zones of the earth, because it will be a world-ruling empire. So not only all the other families of the earth, but also betrayal from within, I think could be implied here. <coughs> Verse 16, Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth or humor and gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, and the light of the candle. In other words, life, normal life as we would describe it. We have our fun and games, 
We enjoy gladness in our society and the freedoms that we think we have that are quickly being taken away from us by those who would betray us to an empirical dictatorship. And the marrying, you know, life going on, kids growing up, marrying, the sound of the millstones, agricultural things, the making of food, that will be interrupted, and the light of the candle. So, darkness. Perhaps today we would interpret that instead of saying the light of the candle, the electric grid will go down as well. Uh, life as we know it will come to a screeching halt. Now, the power has already gone off in the church, right? Somebody flipped off the switch. Uh, th this is already basically history in the church, even though there is a great deal of falling yet to occur in three major trees, three major ministries to be knocked down. But it's already occurring in the church, and it is becoming very imminent that it will happen soon in the nation. This whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. Now, one comment I wanted to make about the fish, he's going to save a remnant out. But the whole nation, if you talk about the nation is figs, is going into famine, pestilence, and disease, and basically will be all taken into captivity, not saved out of it. Now, of that, so that the story remains faithful all the way through, and the parallel of the church and the nation uh, is there, it will save about a 10% remnant of Israel to go into the millennium out of the captivity. But the church appears different in that sense, that the remnant will be taken to a place of safety, and the rest will be destroyed. So God will save out his faithful remnant of the church, and he will also save out 10% of Israel as seed for the millennium. The whole land will be desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And they shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, says the eternal, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans and will make it perpetual desolations. Now, that came to pass historically and Babylon was destroyed and the Medes and Persians came in and took over, and two years later, in the second year of Darius, the Jewish captives were allowed to leave, go back to Jerusalem if they so desired. 43,000 did, but the great majority stayed in Babylon. They already had homes and families and lives there, and they had the Talmud, which is a Babylonian Jewish compilation. So they stayed there. They did not come out. Now, we have some things to reconcile a little bit here in terms of the 70 years. Uh, on a historical level, there had to be another nearly 3,000 years of human history before God fully intervenes at the end of the age. So what he did with ancient Israel was cause them to leave their physical land and be hauled to Babylon, where they stayed 70 years, then a faithful remnant was allowed to go back and rebuild the walls and the city of Jerusalem, and history would continue on for several thousand more years, 25, 26, 2700 years. 
We are almost at the end of that time. Now, I have no doubt, as I've said in sermons before, and you can go back and refer to those, uh, that the 70 years has to do today with the church as we know it. Now, I refer you as proof, just briefly here, not going through the whole thing again, get the sermon tapes on the 70 years, and it has gone into extensively there, but uh, for those who have not heard those who might be on the telephone or hear it later over the internet or whatever, uh, Daniel 9 talks about the 70 years. Uh, Daniel is referring specifically to these 70 as people were being released. He was about at the end of that 70 years. He prayed for deliverance in that prayer, knowing that the time was about there for it to occur. But remember that Daniel is an end-time book, and the last to be understood and sealed until the end. And Daniel 9, where he prayed that prayer, is between Daniel 8, which is clearly uh, something that is going on right now with the ram pushing against, or the goat pushing against the ram and so on. And we went into that in the series as well. Following chapter 9, 10 and 11, all about the king of the north and the king of the south and the battles that go on between them, back and forth, until it all culminates in the first resurrection at the end of Daniel 12. So the 70 years Daniel is praying about there is sandwiched between two major episodes in the very end of time. So it must have some bearing, I would think. Now, Zechariah 2, or actually Zechariah 1, mentions the 70 years, and that is in the introduction of the end-time work of the two witnesses and the remnant of the church coming together to build the latter temple after it has been destroyed. The former temple on Herbert Armstrong is being destroyed and is in rubble already. There are still some stones on top of one another, but they'll be knocked down as well before this is over. So, he introduces, and Zechariah started, if you look at the dates in Haggai and Zechariah, right in the middle of Haggai. Haggai was giving his message, and Zechariah started his in the middle, time-wise, of Haggai's. So, it goes on then, in chapter 2, 3, and 4, to talk about the work of the church at the end time, building the temple, and its leadership, Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two witnesses, which are tied in Zechariah 4 to chapter 11 of Revelation in an undeniable fashion. The two anointed ones are the two olive trees there, it says, are the two olive trees, and those are the only two places in the Bible that olive trees, the two, are mentioned. So, the tie-in is direct, and in Zechariah 1, the reference is this reference is to the church here at the end time, having gone through almost 70 years, and I think that it is almost at the end of the 70 years that this was even revealed, that we might understand that the church has to be put back together, at least a faithful remnant of it, and God will stir those people to come to the leadership that he provides, and the latter temple will be built. So the 70 years of Jeremiah that Daniel referred to, and which we're reading about here in Jeremiah 25, and it's also 
I think in chapter 29, ahead of here anyway, we'll get there. Has to be for today as well, and in fact the context of Jeremiah says, in the latter days you will understand it perfectly. So, it is for today. Now, do we have a 70-year captivity when our nation is destroyed to look forward to? Will God raise us up on the wings of eagles or give us the life and strength of eagles and all of you will live another 70 years to go through this captivity? Let's see, some of you are 80, round about that. Another 70 years will make you 150. Are you ready for that? I think not. I certainly am not. don't want to live that long on this earth. And the reason I make that comment is God, I think, is clearly implying in Matthew 24 that this generation, which is called at the end, will not die out until all these things happen. Uh, it wasn't talking about the generation of those apostles in that day. They're all dead now. But the context there is an end-time context. So he's talking about the generation of people called at the end. And that's you and me and the people throughout the world who are part or called out as called out ones of the church of God. He is not readying a next generation. In fact, he is only calling a very few of our children at this point. Most of them are going back into the world to one degree or another. It is only a few who are blessed to have their minds open and to understand now. So, for the most part, the generation God is working with is you and me. And we are getting old as a church. We have quite a few young people here, but for the most part, around the world, when you look at the church, it's people that have been in for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they are getting older. So this thing has to be finished before that generation called in the 50s, 60s, and 70s dies out has to happen. So it must be close. Now, how does it fit in with the inside story? Well, I think it is clear when you understand and put the prophecies together that the church was born in Babylon. This end-time church had its beginnings in a Babylonian society and probably in the area of 1933 to 1934 is the best I can pin it down. And we are only just past 2003-2004. In fact, we're a couple of years past that. Babylon has not yet fallen. But I think that a, an opportunity for deliverance has been open to us already. God has given a place where we can begin together and try to set up the right kind of society. I think that he revealed this knowledge to us and made us a preparation crew to prepare it for others to come later. I believe that is our job. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given us the information. If he hadn't wanted us to do it, he would have given it to someone else. And they would be doing it. But he had to give it to someone. And he didn't give it to us because we're mighty, because we're noble, but because we're weak in base, and that to some way, somehow, someday, this will show the glory of God. Well, I don't think we're important in that sense, other than being 
a crew that came ahead to prepare a way, to prepare a place that they might begin to gather. Because they must gather and go from there to a place of safety. The gathering occurs not at a place of safety, but ahead of time in Jerusalem without walls with much men and cattle. And that is occurring right at the end of 70 years in the church. If you use 1933, if you use 1934, then this should be happening or some break in the humdrum should occur. God gave us this place and we began to divide it up in January of 2003. Is that significant or not? Now, most would laugh at that, but I feel that it is very significant. And it came in such a way that it could not have come without God's hand in it. You all know that story. That doesn't make us important, but I think that those 70 years basically are accomplished, and that shortly thereafter then, if the prep crew does its job and has a place ready, a place where God could begin to gather people, but he will begin to gather them, and Babylon will fall. Not far off. Now, nothing says it has to be on the exact same day, like it was 430 years when they came out of Egypt, but the 70 years is a somewhat fluid thing. Babylon took some captive, they came back and took some more captives. So to nail that down specifically is very hard in history. And in some respects, it might be hard to nail down in this day and age, although the beginnings of the church through Loma and Herbert Armstrong really, if that could be called a prep crew for the former temple, uh, God began preparing them as early as 1927. And the church did not come to full uh, being until 1933 to 34. So we are now past 70 years, and I think that it is time for some important things to begin to happen. After 70 years, he says, or once 70 years are accomplished, I will punish the king of Babylon, and that nation, says the Eternal, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. Now, if America and Israel today represent the Babylonian system with America and Great Britain, primarily America, being the leader, this has to happen soon. And I think that what we see occurring in the world right now will be leading to that. Let's consider for a moment that we're hearing the war drums beating more and more about Iraq. I mean, excuse me, Iran. We've already been to Iraq. Uh, but now it is about Iran or Iran. You see it now on CNN. You see it on the major newscast that we are beginning to talk to our allies and to others about sanctions against Iran uh, by the UN. And of course, that will be blocked by people who are friends of Iran. Uh, China has already spoken up just in the last day or two and said, uh, we don't want to bring any damages against those people. They are one of the major buyers of oil from Iran, along with Europe 
So China does not want to see Iran go down, nor does Europe. But the plot thickens because the only thing I think basically that causes people to want the American dollar today is that it is still reasonably stable based on the sale of oil around the world in dollars. Saddam Hussein began selling uh, oil in euros, and we attacked him almost immediately. Iran is planning on starting to sell oil for euros in March. And we are starting to beat the drums about doing something about them. I think those leaders in Washington understand, I, I say leaders tongue-in-cheek, but those in charge in Washington understand that the only reason people really want the dollar now is so they can use it to buy oil. And if they can buy it with euros, they will have no use for the American dollar. And our economy will crash. So I think that it is almost inevitable that we have to attack Iran soon if they go ahead with their plan. But they are also pushing at us, aren't they, by saying that we are going to open up our nuclear facilities again. We're going to take the United Nations seal off of them. We're going to go in and proceed with our nuclear program. And they, in spite of the war t uh, talk against them and sanctions against them, uh, they're just poking away at us by saying we will do what we wish to do. Now, I gave a sermon some time back on Daniel 8, and in that postulated that perhaps the boat from the West that comes flying without touching the ground could be none other than the United States. Now, in explaining the parable there, or the story a little later in chapter 8, it talks about how the goat is the king of Greece. Now, perhaps it is logical and fair and correct to say that we represent that today on this basis. That is, that in that day, geography was centered in the Middle East. And anything around the Mediterranean and West were called the kingdoms of the West. Greece was the primary uh, empire of the West. Now, geography has expanded since then. And when people today speak of the West or Western powers, they have no thought of Greece. What is Greece today? Basically, nothing, and not likely to be anything. So in an end-time book of Daniel, when we are almost at the end of this age, you would think, if it's speaking of the country of Greece, Greece would be becoming a superpower today. But they aren't. So it obviously has to have a different meaning if we are at the end of the age, and I truly believe that we are. We are planning on going into Iran with no ground troops, but bombing it only. Our feet may never touch the ground coming from the West. It has one horn, basically, one leader, 
and Iran will now be bushwhacked. Now it says that the ram that is pushing has two horns, and one is stronger and comes up after the first. Well now, if Saddam Hussein and Iraq were the first horn, it has now been demolished, and we have one that is coming up later that is stronger, stronger militarily, stronger politically, perhaps stronger economically, and certainly much larger. Iran is about the size of Alaska, which is about the size of half the United States to the lower 48. Or, for those of you who have driven across Texas, Iran is about five times bigger than Texas. That's a long ride across there. It's a big place. But we're talking of using nuclear bombs there now. Small ones, you know, uh, that have been approved for battlefield use as a deterrent to war. And we are proclaiming that these smaller nuclear bombs uh, are a big deterrent to war and will bring peace because rogue nations are not afraid of our big bombs. They know we would not use them, so they're not afraid of them. So we want to use smaller nuclear bombs to show that we will use nuclear force. And we may go into Iran with small nuclear bombs. And they explode underground so they're safer and not harmful to the public, is the way it's being put. At any rate, if the view that I espoused of Daniel 8 is correct, I think there will be no doubt that we will destroy Iran. We will win that one. Because it says the goat from the west destroys the first horn of the ram, and a stronger one comes up later. That, I think, would be Iran, and we will destroy it as well. However, it goes on to say that while he is in his power, the goat will have his horn knocked off, and his governments be supplanted, set aside, and given over to four others. That is in the works as well. I do not have, and I didn't look it up this morning, but I have a chart that some people in the New World Order, perhaps the United Nations involved in it, I don't remember exactly the source of it, has divided the world up into ten zones. And those zones do not follow continental lines. As I recall the map of the United States, it was broken into three or four, and I think possibly four, of those zones. You see, they are trying to destroy the sovereignty of the nations, particularly America. The Council on Foreign Relations now has recommended that all our borders between Mexico and Canada be removed within five years. That helps destroy our autonomy and our sovereignty. Uh, they want to redivide America, not so that it is one piece anymore, 
but so that it is in several pieces ruled by different people and therefore has no power. So, the whole story of what has happened to date with Iraq, what appears to be about to happen in Iran, fits Daniel 8. But shortly thereafter, it says the horn of the goat, if it represents the United States, will be broken and his government divided into four. So somewhere, someone is planning on dividing the U.S. under four different jurisdictions if this view of Daniel 8 is correct. Now, whether that will happen in April or May or June, I do not know. Or whether it will take six months or a year or two before that horn is broken is not said. But the context seems to be fairly immediate. In other words, you break one, you go and break the other, and then you have yours broken in turn. Now, it has not been long since we broke the first horn in Iraq, has it? Sometime after 9-1-1. So, when did we go in there? 2002, sometime. I guess it was. 2003, when we actually made the invasion. All right, well, we got two going on three years then, since we broke that horn. And we're about to break the other one, it appears, by March. The Israeli military has been given a mandate to have the attack accomplished by the end of March, is what's coming out of Israel. And they have been doing war games in Turkey, because Turkey is involved being a neighbor of Iran. And the United States has been negotiating with Turkey as an ally against Iran as well. So the Israeli military has been given the go-ahead by Ariel Sharon before he had his uh, stroke, and that is in the works and being planned along with the United States. So let's say within three years then, as a general figure, this other attack occurs. And it won't take long if we use small nuclear bombs to have Iran into subjection. You might have as much as three years, if that's a pattern then, before the horn of the goat is also broken. But I wouldn't guarantee that. You see, if we go into Iran and we upset the oil balance and we upset the designs that others have on selling oil for euros, uh, we're going to have a lot of people angry with us. China's already upset and it hasn't even happened. Europe's upset and it hasn't even happened. And on and on it goes. So, we'll see what happens. But here it says that Babylon and a great coalition of nations, all the kings of the north, will come against Babylon, or against us, speaking to Israel here. But to look at us today, it's hard to tell the difference between Israel and Babylon. The beliefs are the same. Interestingly, in referring to the Grecian Empire there in Daniel 8. <coughs> Greece was supposed to be the birth of, the, of democracy. 
Where do you find democracy today? Maybe we are a type of that ancient Grecian kingdom to the West, in government and in terms of the military that was to come, then and has come now. There's much, much more showing that we are Babylon in that series, so I'll, I'll leave those comments at that. So it is going to be a coalition against America that is going to be very widespread. The Islamic world is mentioned uh, predominantly or, or very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, very strongly at least in Psalm 83, as well as other countries. So it will include them, it will include the Europeans, it will include the East. Remember that the beast who takes over after America goes down and Israel is taken captive rules the whole world. The whole world. Everyone will worship the beast except the true people of God who are few. Just a few thousand. The rest of the world Everyone will worship the beast. So it is a coalition against America and against Israel that is worldwide. And yes, it will be iron and miry clay. It will have a lot of different viewpoints and a lot, a lot of different religions and a lot of different politics. But against the common enemy, they will combine to destroy America. So it will be the whole world against us, and we will fall. The horn will be broken. Can you imagine Americans voting to have four different governments in our country? Think so? No. This is something that will be laid on that vote with its horn broken. It will be divided up against its will. When you break the American government, you can do as you please. And that's exactly what they will do. So I think that the 70 years perhaps has expired and these events are on the table now. About to happen. And it isn't very long. I'd be surprised if they wait three years if we go into Iran with nuclear weapons. I would be surprised. Uh, I think we should be very, very eager and compelled and motivated to prepare ourselves in two ways. Spiritually first, physically second. There are a lot of people who are preparing physically. I've talked to the people that have the land just north of us yesterday, in fact, and they're Mormons, and they believe in the three-year food supply and all the weapons and all the things that the Mormons tell their people they must do. So there are a lot of people who are preparing physically, and you can get on the Internet and find people who tell you to get ready. In fact, somebody handed me a bulletin today about how to prepare a bomb shelter for yourself and to protect your family when things happen in the United States. So there are a lot of people that are aware that our day of destruction is near. It's not just a church thing. They recognize it. They see the decay in our nation, in our government, and in our morals as a people. They see it. He mentioned that, in fact. 
So preparing spiritually is by far the most important thing to turn to God with our whole heart. Our physical preparation should follow that, realizing that things may get disrupted. I don't know how much things will be disrupted in this country. There is quite a bit of talk also that a, a terrorist act of great magnitude will occur within this country before we attack, attack Iran. Uh, to galvanize the American people to accept that we are starting yet another war. Now, whether that will transpire or not remains to be seen. There is historical precedent. Franklin Delano Roosevelt knew, with no doubt, that Pearl Harbor was going to be attacked and did nothing about it because he wanted to have the American people stirred up. It has now been proven pretty well in Congress that America knew of the, the American government knew of the danger of what happened on 9-1-1 and did nothing about it. Perhaps as a catalyst to start a war on terrorism, which is done for economic purposes. Oil. My oil men in Washington. Now, will the same tactic be used again? Or if a terrorist attack is planned by some of our enemies, will it be overlooked again and allowed to happen so that we will be galvanized again as we were in the days of World War II and the days of Iraq? We shall see. I'm not making any prediction there, but the seeds for it have certainly been planted and there are warnings all over that it may occur. So how disruptive it will be if it happens remains to be seen. We've all heard the stories of small nu suitcase nuclear bombs being smuggled into America and that they may be detonated and used. That well could occur. So it could be very disruptive. So, a word to the wise, I think that we should be preparing certainly spiritually and secondarily physically in case things are disrupted. Maybe you should make yourself a little list of things you would not want to be without if things were disrupted in this country. Or if an attack on America came fairly soon after the proposed attack on Iran. You know, what if it was only 30 or 60 or 80, 90, 120 days later? I would rather be prepared ahead of time and it not happened for a year or two, then I had to be not prepared, and it happened soon. Once you get prepared, you're prepared, and then if it goes on a year or two, you're still prepared. But if you're not prepared and it happens, that's bad. So, I think we should be thinking seriously of that. Who knows what might happen between now and the end of March. Maybe nothing. Maybe absolutely nothing. But the Iranians are planning on starting selling oil for euros in March. And if they are allowed to do that and get away with it, and the whole world starts buying oil with euros, no one will want American paper dollars anymore. So either way you slice it. If we do something, it's going to be bad. If we do nothing, our economy will collapse, and it will be bad. So there's nothing but bad ahead.
at least in the near future. Nothing but bad. So prepare yourself with your God and prepare yourself with your toilet paper. Or whatever it is you think you cannot do without. There is rabbit brush here. There's sand. But there's not much toilet paper. That's just a way out example. But there might be things we will need. Because there is disruption ahead. No one knows just how far ahead, okay? So I'm not trying to make predictions of just when something will happen today, but I'll tell you what, the whole world is up in arms. And they're very concerned. And you don't think those, don't think for a minute those people who are taking American dollars aren't beginning to wonder, what about these things? Because we're up to nearly $90 billion a month in trade imbalance. We're buying $90 billion a month more than we are selling. How long can that go on? <coughs> and I believe that those 70 years of us being a church in the midst of, and in that sense, in captive to Babylon, are over. And that this is very imminent. People say, well, we're not in captivity. How hard, how hard has it been, tell me, for us to separate ourselves from Babylon? Have we even yet accomplished it? How much does it still affect us? How much do we still imbibe of it in various ways? Do you think we haven't been in captivity? Anyway, he's going to make it perpetual desolations, verse 12 of Jeremiah 25. And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. So, Jeremiah is talking here about worldwide. This is not a prophecy of just the Middle East. For many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of them also. And I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. Now, has God done that yet? Has there been a true world war in God's hand in punishing all the nations of the earth? That's where this is going. That's how it will culminate. Hasn't happened yet. We're at the end of the age, and it's about to. For thus says the eternal God of Israel to me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Now, it's going to be all nations, and he's going to send them to all these nations. I believe this, again, is an end-time prophecy, and probably is talking about the work of the end-time church, the latter temple, and the two witnesses, who will be sent to all the nations of the world to tell them of the wine cup of the fury of God. You see, it's talking about the destruction of Babylon 
Israel, and the reconvening of a new Babylon that will be a worldwide coalition. Part of Babylon will be destroyed, and then what remains will be amalgamated as a beast power with a false prophet as its religious head. And they have to be told who they are and what they are. Verse 17, Then I took the cup at the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink unto whom the Eternal had sent me. I think it's interesting, they were made to drink it. They will not listen at the end. In fact, the whole world is going to hate the end time ladder temple. It will be a small remnant of people who are faithful to God will be set as an example, as a light on a hill to the world of what happens when you obey God and are blessed, and they will be told that they are not obeying God, have not accepted God, and that they will have plagues, and those plagues will be administered by the two representatives of the end-time church who were sent with that message. So they will be made to drink it, whether they like it or not. So he said, I made all the nations drink where God sent it. And then he enumerated where that was. Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, started there, had to be there first. The kings thereof, the princes thereof, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, and a cursing, or a hissing, or a derision, and a curse, as it is this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and his servants, and his princes, and all his people. So, starts with Israel goes to Egypt, which represents sin around the world. And all the mingled people and all the kings of the land of Uz are youths. And all the kings of the land of the Philistines and Ashkelon and Asa and Ekron and the remnant of Ashdod, those Philippine enemies around Jerusalem historically. Edom, Moab, children of Ammon, so it starts bringing in here uh, Arabic peoples. All the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Zidon, the kings of the islands which are beyond the sea, that may be a reference to Great Britain, uh, where Jeremiah supposedly has gone, or did go. Zidan and Tima and Buzz, and all that are in the utmost corners, and all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mingled people that dwell in the desert, and all the kings of Zimri, and the kings of Elam, that was north of Turkey, and all the kings of the Medes, the Medo-Persian Empire, all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world. I wonder how much Jeremiah traveled in those 23 years. Because he had to enact this on some level, and nobody listened. Now, at the end time, it will have to be done again, and they will be forced to listen by plagues, and their water turning to blood, and various other means. All the kingdoms of the world which are upon the face of the earth, and the king of Shishak, uh, shall drink after them. Therefore you shall say to them, Thus says, and here's the message, Thus says the eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink and be drunken, and puke and fall. And rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. 
you might as well just get drunk, fall on your face, puke up your guts, and pass out for all the good that's going to come to you. And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup in your hand to drink, then shall you say to them, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, You shall certainly drink. For, lo, I begin to bring evil on the city which is called by my name. You'll start with the church. We are Zion, city of God. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. That's where he's going to start and has. And should you be utterly unpunished? If I'm going to bring it on my own church, should the rest of you go unpunished? You shall not be unpunished. For I will call for a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore prophesy you against them all these words, and say to them, The Eternal shall roar from on high, and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitation. He shall give a shout, as they that tread the grapes, against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise shall come even to the ends of the earth. For the Eternal has a controversy with the nations. He will plead with all flesh. It's going to start with the church, and already has. It's about to start with Israel. And from there, God is going to spread his wrath upon the whole world, culminating in the seven last plagues. And most people that are on the face of this earth will die. They will not listen. He will give them that are wicked to the sword, says the Eternal. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Behold, evil shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth. World War III. It will spread from nation to nation till it has engulfed the entire world. It may start in Iran very shortly. It will spread to the goat with the horn who destroys Iran. And from there, it will spread nation to nation. Israel has been the whipping boy. The church has been self-righteous as well. And the church, in its apathy and self-righteousness, is being destroyed first. Israel and its pomposity will be destroyed next. How arrogant and presumptuous are we? We think we are the good guys and everyone else is bad. When some country wants a nuclear weapon, we tell them, you can't have one. We're the only ones that get to have them, us and our friends. Now, how does that make the rest of the world look upon us? They think we're the bad guys and they're the good guys, just like we think we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. Now, from God's perspective on high, we've all become bad guys, including most of the church. And starting there, it is going to spread as a fire around the world. 
And the slain of the eternal shall be at that day from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, neither gathered, nor buried. They shall be dung upon the ground. Horse chips. Cow chips. That's what people will be. Littering the face of the earth. Just like cows or horses do in a pasture. Nobody will care. Nobody will do anything about it. There will be so much death and destruction, they'll just lie there. Verse 34. How you shepherds and cry. Now, for chapter 23 was against the shepherds because they have not followed through with God's message and have mistreated the people. And it spreads to a worldwide conflagration. But he gives another warning here, once he said, this is going to spread worldwide to the shepherds. How you shepherds and cry, the ones who are supposed to be the leaders but aren't, and are preaching smooth and easy things. You all go to a place of safety, and from there you go into the kingdom of God, and everything will be happy, happy. Not going to happen that way, brethren. It's not what the scriptures say. How you shepherds and cry, and wallow yourselves in the ashes, you principles of the flock. What are three major shepherds, three great trees, going to feel like when in one month they are destroyed? When they have been full of spiritual pride and vanity, and we are the only ones who are Philadelphians. All of them. How are they going to feel? Will we be in that destruction as well? We have that potential, brethren. We had better not be proud. We had better be humble and meek and seek our God with all our heart. Because we still have plenty of carnality ourselves. So let's not point the finger. Let's realize that we could be destroyed as well. I believe God has given us a job to do here. We'd better get it done. We'd better not fool around. We'd better get busy and get this task accomplished. We did not come here to save our hides. We came here to do a job that God has given us to do. And we best keep that in mind. This is not about peace and safety for you and me. This is about preparing ourselves spiritually and preparing a place that God can use as a gathering point. It doesn't make us important in that sense. We've just been given a job to do. We best get it done. Howl, you shepherds, and wallow yourselves in the ashes, you principal of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and of your dispersions are accomplished. So, God is going to finish the church off in the context of this destruction and World War III beginning on the world. So, the final note here in this context is to the church. One stone will not remain on another. You shall fall like a pleasant vessel that shatters when it hits the ground. And the shepherds shall have no way to flee 
nor the principle of the flock to escape. They're going to be caught in it. The leaders of the modern-day church of God. Perhaps only a remnant of them as well. Maybe 10% of the ministry will also be brought out that are faithful. I don't know. But as an overall comment from God, the ministry will not escape. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and a howling of the principle of the flock shall be heard, for the eternal has spoiled their pasture. But take it all away from them. And the peaceable habitations are cut down because of the fierce anger of the eternal. So anyone who is saying peace and safety, and if you're just in my group, you're going to be fine, we're going to have peace. All those places that have said peace and safety will be destroyed. Now do you see more clearly why I do not preach peace and safety to you? I preach that it is possible if we obey God with our whole heart, but if we don't, we'll be destroyed just like everyone else. We are no better. God is no respecter of persons. If he gives you a job to do, you had best get it done or else. That's where we stand. How much are we here to take care of ourselves? And how much are we here to prepare for others? The peaceable habitations are cut down because of the fierce anger of the eternal. He has forsaken his covert as the lion. The lion hides until it's hungry, comes out and roars and goes hunting. And God is not going to sit on his throne in heaven forever. He's going to come out of there and send Jesus Christ out there like a lion. For their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. God will not be mocked. We are living in a world that has rejected God. We are living in a church which pays very little attention to God. He is a jealous God. He will not be mocked. And Jesus Christ is going to rise and come roaring as a lion. So let us be warned, and let us prepare ourselves in our relationship with God, and prepare for others as well, that we might be helpers of their joy. Because there is a day of joy coming, but we have to be prepared so that we can be there and be a part of it. And that is the goal and the purpose that we have ahead of us. So it's not peace guaranteed if you're here. It's peace only if we obey God and serve Him with our whole heart, and He chooses to let us be a part of that faithful record.